Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Good evening and welcome to the Fred Paul Show on ADH TV. Well, it's going to be a disturbing show this evening, so let's kick it off with something religiously reassuring. Here it is. I'm too sexy for my shirt. Too sexy for my shirt. So sexy it hurts. And I'm too sexy for Milan. Too sexy for Milan. Japan. Did I say religious? I did. And it's true. Because the two blokes in that video, brothers Fred and Richard Fairbrass, who released that song under the band name Right Said Fred in 1991, during the recent COVID lockdowns became outspoken defenders of free speech. And like all people who are drawn to defending freedom, they eventually found themselves surrounded by Christians. And a month ago, they released this. It's a spiritual war. If you turn a blind eye, turn a blind eye, you get more than you bargained for. Catchy tune and prescient words. The brothers explained the genesis of that song on my colleague Mark Stein's show, which was being guest hosted by Andrew Lawton on ADH TV recently. Catchy. Uh, what's it all about? Uh, spiritual war, we wrote, um, because that's what we think we're in. Um, personally, we think we're we think there's an attack on our on our spirits, basically. On our spirituality, yes. Yeah, our spirituality. Yeah, we do. We think there's a, um, a, a, a there's a desire to have us um, kind of um, dehumanised, separated. Um, we were at an, an event at the Emmanuel Centre in London some time ago, and um, there was a long conversation about uh, a vaccine about, engine, the vaccine engine, the whole thing, and then spirituality came up as an, as an issue, and then somebody stood up and started reciting the Lord's Prayer. 
And then within maybe 15 to 20 seconds, the whole place stood up yeah. and started reciting the Lord's Prayer as one. Now, I'm not a, I'm not a practicing Christian, but that was ex- extremely significant to me, that people were looking for something beyond, beyond. They're looking for something beyond, you know, the, the fallible politicians, the, the, the compromised king. They're looking for something pure. Something pure, huh? After decades of nihilistic liberalism, more and more people are yearning for deeper meaning. Even pop stars, whose original fame was based on sex and fashion. The Fair Brass Brothers' latest song is a reminder that the resistance to the authoritarianism that is increasingly surrounding us will be led by people who emphatically oppose the secularism of those in power. In other words, Christians. Because they, more than atheists, appreciate what the new authoritarians are taking from us, our spiritual autonomy and our free will. Christians are the first to defy the order to become cogs in the man-made machine because, one, they answer to a higher power, and two, they're not afraid. And there are plenty of reasons to be afraid these days. For almost 30 years, under both coalition and labour, the federal government has been slowly but surely tightening the screws on our freedom of speech. But the latest clampdown is arguably the most sinister and frightening proposal put to the Australian Parliament in all of its 122 years. The legislation, which will be rushed through if we don't all object to it now, will empower a panel of bureaucrats to determine whether what you say on social media is the truth. We saw during COVID how harmful this can be. Debate about vaccines and ivermectin was stifled by the government and the mainstream media. And as a result, Australians died or were seriously injured. You'd think that after such blindingly obvious evidence of the catastrophic consequences of restricting free debate, especially about issues of life and death, Australian politicians would exercise extra caution before doing it again. But they're not. They're going in the opposite direction. Under the law being proposed by Federal Communications Minister Michelle Rowland, the Australian Communication and Media Authority will be the arbiter of whether a post on social media qualifies as misinformation or disinformation, and if so, can fine people or companies up to $500,000. This isn't a rogue policy either. Last month, e-safety commissioner Julian, Julie Inman-Grant threatened Twitter, the only social media platform that allows open debate, with daily fines of $700,000 if it doesn't restrict what she calls hate speech. These were all based on complaints from the usual easily offended snowflakes, complaints made to the e-safety commissioner. But just because these people are offended doesn't mean they're right. In fact, it's, it's, it's disturbing to have to remind people of this, but being offended is an essential part of living in a free society. 
John Stuart Mill defined the benefits of this in On Liberty, his book published in 1859, when he said free speech enabled people to be disabused of mistaken ideas or have their current ideas bolstered because they stand up to scrutiny. After centuries of this simple concept enabling human progress, our government is about to legislate it away. If it does, our ability to flourish will wither and die. You have 34 days to lodge your objection to this tyranny. Go to infrastructure.gov.au slash have your say to find out how. Don't let the government take away your most fundamental right or the prosperity of your children. It's ironic that at the same time it, the government is restricting your voice, it is also proposing to facilitate a constitutionally permanent voice for a different group, a panel of Indigenous people representing about 2% of the nation. It's ironic, but not surprising, because this government consists of social engineers whose lust for power can only be achieved by diminishing yours. Here's another irony. On the weekend, New South Wales Premier Chris Minns announced he would be completing a process started by his Liberal predecessor, Mike Baird, to return Goat Island in the middle of Sydney Harbour to its traditional owners. He's throwing a lazy $43 million of other people's money at it as well, so they can, well, I'm not sure what they're gonna do with it. Here's a quote. The New South government has today taken a significant step in the process for transferring, transferring Goat Island to Aboriginal ownership by signing a memorandum of understanding with the Goat Island Transfer Committee. $43 million is committed to remediate and restore Goat Island and pave the way for the transfer back to the Aboriginal community. The, community will, the committee will identify options for the transfer, development recommend, develop recommendations for cultural, tourism and public uses of the site, and provide advice on the management of the site. It will also develop a strategic business case to be considered by the New South Wales government. But here's the key bit. Committee members have given unanimous support to a registered Aboriginal owners research project which aims to identify Aboriginal owners of Goat Island. So, Minns is giving away an island and $43 million, but he doesn't know who to. On the same weekend that that memorandum of understanding was signed, the ACT government forcibly took back Calvary, a hospital in Canberra owned by the Catholic Church. So the religious connection our Indigenous brothers and sisters have with the land, that is Goat Island, is so strong that the New South Wales government needs to conduct research into who they give the island back to while a hospital owned and still run by the Catholic Church is tyrannically repossessed. Every day the myth grows that Australian culture is illegitimate and it is responsible for the heinous destruction 
of the peaceful, sophisticated, spiritual culture of the nomadic natives who roamed here for tens of thousands of years before 1788. This is, of course, an audacious lie that will end with either a revival of our own spirituality and cultural fortitude, or the sort of rioting and destruction that is now destroying France. Well, joining me now is the Policy Director of the Sydney Catholic Archdiocese, Monica Dumit. Monica, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thanks for coming in because the future of religious freedom in Australia is uh, very tentative at the moment. Uh, and I'm glad you're here to shed some light on it. Now, let's start with uh, the instance. There is at least one instance that you know of where a member of a minority group, shall we say, deliberately sought a job in a Catholic kindergarten and then objected when he was found to be a bad fit. Can you tell me what happened? Yeah, sure. So what happened is um, a, a young man came in and presented to the school and, and got a casual job uh, in one of our after-school care uh, type, of, um, type of agencies and what age group? What age group kids are we talking here? Young primary, right. so okay, yep. four, five, six. Yep. And uh, had a probationary period. Was it was just there as a casual? Had a probationary period, um, and then was advised that he would be moved to a permanent contract. Uh, which he said, "Great. Oh, and by the way, I intend to transition uh, to a female." And so the school said, "Look, that's not really going to be appropriate given the age group." Uh, and probably the inability and unwillingness of parents to explain to their their young kids why Mr. Smith is now coming back as uh, as a miss. The permanent contract wasn't um, wasn't the offer of a permanent contract wasn't extended to him, and um, the casual contract concluded. Uh, and then, as these things happened, we get a call from the media uh, making inquiries. But interestingly, the inquiries were made using the preferred name uh, of this young man uh, and a quick social media search showed a long history of sort of trans activism, uh, which sort of was a real crossing of the Rubicon moment for us, um, I think, because it made us realise that this isn't always necessarily just about people of goodwill coming in and, you know, presenting with their struggles, as all of us have uh, but that there is this possibility for activists to actually plant themselves in schools uh, to try and take advantage of anti-discrimination laws and well, see how far they can push. We, yeah, before we move on to, you know, the, the shady or, or the ambiguous uh, motivations involved here, can you just go into some more detail into how it transpired? I mean, was there any animosity when the school said, look, you know, this is a Catholic school, you know, we... We, we don't uh, condone that sort of thing. I mean, what, was, was it done in a civil way? Look, my understanding is it, it was, and actually the school didn't realise that there was any problem until the inquiries from the media uh, started coming in. And look, I wasn't involved directly, uh, only when the media inquiries came in was when I first learned about it. Uh, but certainly there didn't seem to be any animosity at that point. It was just... Uh, 
Well, it would suggest that there is something uh, a little um, underhanded going on here when the first thing you hear is from the media. I mean, you always have to be suspicious when, when someone's first response when they face some sort of obstacle in life is to run off to the, well, I'm guessing the Sydney Morning Herald, but it could have been the ABC. <laughs> anyway, so let's just talk about what this person's objective is. So he's approached a Catholic school for a job has had a long history of being sympathetic towards transgender and once his, 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 a contract is on the table, he's, got, he's revealed what his, uh, his, his lifestyle is like, if, if, uh, for want of a better word. What do you think his objective was, Monica? Look, it's, it's hard to say. I think that you can probably, without wanting to imply objectives, you can look at what happened next, which was contact with the media. Uh, and so I, I think that there is an element... There are people who want to have a media story out there um, that they have been discriminated against, that they've been treated unfairly, um, mainly, possibly for fame, but I think quite possibly to try and push a change to the law, right? If we can collect some stories and, and some of these activist organisations uh, advertise for, you know, tell us about discrimination that you've experienced in a religious school. The thing is, is that People aren't discriminated in faith-based schools, discriminated against in faith-based schools, and so we actually have to create environments uh, and create circumstances where they can make those allegations. And I, my sense is that that's what's behind some of this type of activism. And also the compensation payouts, wouldn't you say? Yeah, look, potentially, but I actually think that's probably second order. I think the real idea is to create stories of discrimination uh, in order to force changes to the law. I think that that's that's where we're headed. It's a bit crazy, really. I mean, you have to seek out discrimination in order to change the laws for discrimination. It, 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 I mean, get a life springs to mind. <laughs> um, now, but let's, let, let's just be very clear here. Oh, well, let, what was the outcome? What happened? Uh, we heard nothing more. So gave quite a, a straight back response to the media inquiry and, and it wasn't reported. Right. Um, okay. So, and, and you haven't heard back from the gentleman involved? I no, not not directly. I've you know I've seen him him pop up in other media circumstances now right. years later. But do you think he's alone? Does. I mean, it's it's a pretty tempting road to go down if you're that way inclined. I mean, you know, it, you, you could you might be responsible for changing the law. You might get a huge payout. I mean, do you think this is the only instance of this kind of deliberately seeking out uh, prejudice in order to stir some trouble? Look, I doubt it. Uh, you remember when Archbishop Julian Porteous was accused of discrimination for distributing a booklet uh, to school students. The complainant in that case hadn't received a copy of the booklet and actually had to go online, locate a, book, a copy of the booklet, download it in order to be offended by it and then to lodge <laughs> a discrimination complaint. Uh, yeah, so, that's crazy. <laughs> I, look, yeah. I, I do think that, you know, Religious organisations, religious schools are going to be targets for activists because if they want to claim that they're being discriminated against, uh, the, the sympathy that religious schools get given um, is decreasing, obviously. It is indeed. Yeah. And well, let's, let's just talk about the, where you actually stand these days because I, I think a lot of the viewers would, would be a little bit confused about this. Is it, I mean, it probably varies from state to state, but is it still legal for a school to reject an application from a teacher or a student on religious grounds? 
uh, depends on where you are. So in most, in most jurisdictions it is, the Northern Territory removed that ability um, from schools and that's strictly on the basis of religious belief. Uh, Victoria has removed the ability for schools to reject uh, the enrolment of a student or, or a teacher on uh, other grounds as well, like sexual orientation, gender identity and things like that. Um, so let's just be clear there. So a, a Catholic, so a, a transgender or a very overtly ostentatious gay person applies for a job at a Catholic school in Victoria. Does the school have the right to say, look, no, you're not a very good fit. Try somewhere else. No. Um, and more so if, it, if an existing teacher decides to either transition or, or enter into a same-sex marriage or something like that, similarly, uh, the school has no... Even if, that's, even if that teacher starts, you know, preaching that kind of uh, lifestyle to the children? Well, the school would have to make the case that that's a breach of contract and that uh, the idea is that they're not fulfilling their their duties as a Catholic school teacher. Um, the flip side of that would obviously be an argument that no, it's it's discrimination on the basis strictly on the basis of sexual orientation. And yeah, good, yeah. Good luck getting that through the courts. I mean, the way our <laughs> legal system in Victoria, is. Victoria, right? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay. So, well, speaking, well, just focusing still on the law, there are two legal fronts where changes to this arrangement are afoot. Firstly, the Charter of Rights Inquiry, which is based on a document written by the Human Rights Commission, and uh, that is due to reach some conclusion uh, about a proposed Bill of Rights that they're going to come down, I think, next March. Um, do you anticipate that the rights of, say, gay and transgender people will take precedent over religious rights in this proposed Bill of Rights for Australians? Oh, look, most certainly, and, and for anyone who thinks that the Charter of Rights will somehow apply human rights equally, you just have to look at places like Canada that has a Charter of Rights, and also Victoria has a Charter of Rights, uh, and we can see that religious rights are deprioritised um, in favour of other rights when it comes to, to those jurisdictions, and I don't anticipate that a National Charter of Rights would be any different. And, and look, to be honest, the Equality Campaign, so Equality Australia, uh, which campaigned heavily, obviously, for the yes vote in same-sex marriage. As soon as that vote was passed and, and that legislation uh, through the federal parliament, they turned their attention straight towards a Charter of Rights and Equality Australia has basically morphed into a Charter of Rights campaign. So that tells you a little bit about the intentions of those who are pushing this. Yeah, so once they redefined marriage, they came, looking, they, they came uh, after the kids because that's the next... Uh that, that, that's the next stop on the road to completely altering our culture and our values and our, our principles, uh, the ones on which I'd argue that our, all our freedoms and prosperity are based on. Now, <laughs> the other legal body looking into this is the Australian Law Reform Commission, mm -hmm. which made its intentions clear in a consultation paper in February. What did that say? Oh, well, it, it came out with a number of proposals on which people were invited to comment, but helpfully what the consultation paper did was gave us some great examples of how the Law Reform Commission expected this to play out. So, for example, they said that um, a religious school would still be allowed to teach its doctrine on 
marriage, sexuality and things like that, as long as it, it abided by its duty of care to students. Uh, so you can see the argument there that someone will say teaching religious tradition on matters of marriage and sexuality um, might be harmful to students. We hear that all the time. The, all, of these, all of these legal um, uh, documents come with these little caveats that are quite vague and open to interpretation, don't they? I mean, the, the Labor's policy uh, says, you know, Labor's um, platform, official, the, the official Labor Party platform, says that, yes, all Australians have a right to, uh, to pursue their religion and adhere to their religion, but I think the phrase the, the, Liberal, the Labor Party uses is it must also be fit for purpose. I mean, the, the phrase that you just used, what was that phrase? The, the, uh, that they still discharge their duty of care to duty students. Duty of care. I mean, open to interpretation, isn't it? Absolutely. And then there's, there's another one that says a religious school can re require a religious education teacher to teach doctrine on marriage and sexuality and things like that. But they all must also allow that teacher to teach alternate views if they would like. Well, if they would like. I mean, who's calling the shots here? It's just, this is totalitarianism. I mean, there's another thing that the, uh, that the uh, Law Reform Commission says, and that is um, that the school, quote, can continue to build a community of faith, unquote. You know, that sounds all well and good. I mean, it's what a lovely, reassuring thing for the Australian Law Reform Commission to be saying while it is investigating changes to religious freedom, but it doesn't really mean it because the, the clauses that it insists on are totally incompatible with building a community of faith. Exactly. How, how can you build a community of faith when you're saying that uh, the teachers don't necessarily need to teach or model the faith to the students and the students themselves don't, don't need to be adherents to the faith? So I, I'm not really sure how you can build a community of faith without a community present. I, Exactly. Why can't the government just let individual schools make individual decisions, you know, according to the circumstances? Why, why does Canberra have to stick its nose into relationships between schools and teachers and students? Absolutely. And does anyone think that getting anti-discrimination tribunals and the Australian Human Rights Commission involved is going to make this better for anybody? Students, yeah. teachers, families, no, no. Nobody. No, everyone's going to be looking over their shoulders. And, and as you've already seen in that, in that Catholic school, um, there will be opportunists who uh, just cause trouble for the sake of it. I mean, there's already um, some restrictions happening in Tasmania, aren't there? What's happening there? Yeah, well, so the Tasmanian law, uh, their anti-discrimination law is quite broad and uh, doesn't allow even sort of somebody to be offended or insulted on the basis of a protected attribute, and they've removed the religious exemptions for schools. Um, and so it's it's interesting, actually, just in the media in the in the past week, you've got Catholic Education Tasmania talking about introducing a new curriculum uh, for religion that talks about uh, the Catholic teaching on marriage and sexuality, not just LGBTI issues, but everything from abortion to contraception to cohabitation. Uh, and everything like that. And then you've got Rodney Croom, who heads up Equality Tasmania, coming in and saying, well, if you persist with that curriculum, then we're going to start lodging complaints with the Standards Authority and with the Anti-Discrimination Commission. What, does, he, does he want the schools to consult him before they, before they devise their curriculum? Well, yeah, one of, his, one of his requests was that LGBT, the LGBT community get consulted on the curriculum. And look, 
you know, I'm sorry, but it's a Catholic school curriculum. And so you, I would assume, consult Catholic educational experts uh, and <laughs> not, not minority groups. No, and, exactly. And yeah. this doesn't have anything to do with the LGBT community. It would be the same as I wouldn't consult members of the Jewish community or the the Islamic, the Islamic community, exactly. as much respect yeah. and love as I have for, for my brothers and sisters in those religions, um, they have no input on Catholic school curriculum on religion. Indeed, indeed. Now let's just shift focus uh, to uh, something else that happened in, in Australia today that has a lot to do with religious freedom, but even more than that, because today is actually a very sad day in Australian history. This is the day that the Australian Capital Territory Government forcibly repossessed the Calvary Hospital in Canberra. Now, this, uh, th th this has been a debate for some time, but this is more about just a government targeting Catholics. I mean, firstly, I'll ask you, th this, is, this, this is an easy target for the government because, you know, it's the Catholic Church and nobody feels sorry for the Catholic Church anymore. But... Uh, really, it applies to everyone, doesn't it, Monica? Absolutely. So uh, the takeover of Calvary basically says, if we don't like the way you are operating um, a facility and we don't like the ethos under which you're operating it, we'll just take it over. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it, it's, a, it's a hospital run by the Catholic Church today. Uh, it could be, a, a, you know, a football club tomorrow or, a, you know, or a pub or, you know, someone's house. I mean, the, the precedent has been set, hasn't it? Absolutely. And we've just been talking about schools. Um, well, yeah. We can go through all of these debates with the Human Rights Commission and the Law Reform Commission and everything like that. But if the government, if the government's really serious about getting rid of some religious schools that they don't like, they can just do exactly what the ACT government's done today, yeah. which is just come in and take it over. Well, let's just uh, finish off on this point, Monica. Um, if you took Christianity out of our history and culture, what would be left? Well, I think you just have to go back and look at what happened in pre-Christian times, right? I mean, Christians came and, and educated those who didn't receive an education. They took the sick and the dying into their homes and then ultimately into hospices and places like that so that they weren't left to die on their own by exposure and things like that. I think there's a sense of barbarism that comes in if you remove the Christian roots from our culture. Yeah, you can see that barbarity happening on the streets of France right now. Monica Dumit, thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much, Fred. That's Monica Dumit, the uh, policy director of the Catholic, Sydney Catholic Archdiocese, and she has some serious warnings about religious freedoms in Australia. Now, let's go to an interview I did a few days ago with Institute of Public Affairs Deputy Executive Director Dan Wild, who had travelled to Western Australia to investigate yet another form of government intervention that is crushing hardworking Australian workers for no discernible reason. And joining me now from Bustleton, south of Perth in Western Australia, is Dan Wild of the Institute of Public Affairs. Dan, welcome to the show. 
G'day, Fred. Nice to be with you. Dan, you're in the southwest of WA to gauge the feeling among farmers about the ridiculous levels of regulation that are imposed on them. Let's just go through a few of the numbers here. West Australian farmers grow 36% of the national wheat crop, yet they face 123 regulatory categories. I might get you to elaborate on that, but that's not the total number of regulations they face. That's just the number of categories under which the regulations are imposed. WA farmers also grow 40% of the national barley crop, but have to deal with 30 different regulatory bodies, both state and federal, uh, which is more than any other farmers in the nation. And WA farmers grow 43% of the national canola crop, but again, face more regulation than farmers in all the other states. I could go on, but uh, Dan, let's just cut to the chase here. How angry are the farmers in the region of, in the region of Southwest WA about all this regulation? Yeah, Fred, look, there's white hot anger in the farming communities that we visited in Katanning and Katarup and uh, through Augusta with the new regulations that are coming in. And look, one of the key issues here is there hasn't been any proper consultation that's taken place. Uh, as you identify, they are the biggest producers in the nation of barley, of wheat, uh, of canola, a major player when it comes to uh, livestock. And of course, they've been hit with a ban on the uh, live sheep exportation here uh, coming out of WA. So they're major producers, uh, yet all the regulation red tape that they face, uh, that's going to be pushed on to high cost to consumers. Uh, it's going to put upward pressure on prices, uh, inflationary pressures ultimately flowing through to high interest rates in the context of an economy uh, that's slowing down. So this is the last thing uh, that food producers in this state need. It's the last thing that families and businesses need. Uh, yet the government here in Western Australia has refused to listen up until very recently when they had a, a bit of a pushback and a, and a delay to the implementation of some of the Aboriginal cultural heritage laws. Uh, but look, the red tape keeps growing. And as I say, the costs are being pushed onto the producers that are uh, feeding the nation, feeding the world, earning that critical export revenue. And this is a, an issue where the communities are uh, very angry, uh, frustrated, and they want answers. Yeah, let's let's talk about the communities. We'll get onto the regulations and the economic costs in a minute. But I'm a West Aussie myself. I know that area reasonably well. It's lush in some parts, and in fact, it has some of the most spectacular Jarrah and Carry forests, which you might have driven through. But farming in the region is far from easy. Rainfall can be both excessive and sporadic in that part of the world. Have the farmers seen, how have the farmers seemed to you, Dan? They're a pretty hardy bunch, aren't they? Look, they are. I think farmers represent the best of who we are as a nation, uh, self-reliant, uh, resilient, hardworking. Uh, they go about their lives in a very humble, dignified fashion. Uh, so they're, you know, hardworking people. They feel beset upon and put upon by this. And of course, one of the issues, as you know, Fred, is that they spend their time working. You know, they're out on the farm working hard all day, every day. Uh, yet they're up against these professional campaigning organisations run out of the inner cities uh, that are doing their best to run farmers out of their out of their business and out of their livelihood. So there is an awakening that's taking place in agriculture and farming communities about the need to advocate for their own interests and their own sector, so that these city-based bureaucrats, activists, and politicians understand how vital this sector is uh, to the state. Uh, to the nation and also the entire world. So what are these regulations, Dan? What are they trying to, what, are, what do they do and what are they trying to achieve? Well, look, the new regulations that are coming in, uh, that, that are actually in place now, they came in place last Saturday, uh, are basically saying that uh, 
if you have a property that's uh, 1,100 square metres or more, uh, that you need the permission of uh, various Indigenous uh, bodies in order to undertake any meaningful change to your land. If you're going to, for example, put in a fence post uh, that's more than 50 uh, centimetres deep, uh, that you'll need to have the approval of, of relevant Indigenous elders. Uh, and it really has rendered any notion of private property obsolete in Western Australia. Uh, basically, any meaningful activity you want to undertake on your own privately held farmland or pastoral land uh, is going to require the approval of this massive new unelected and unaccountable uh, bureaucratic apparatus. Uh, there was no meaningful consultation uh, that had taken place. It wasn't until the uh, the PGA, the Pastoral and Graziers Association, undertook uh, a survey and a, a petition of 30,000 people that was submitted to Parliament in just, uh, in just a couple of weeks that any kind of attention was paid to this issue. So again, the community has been pushing back and uh, the government now appears to be listening and changing a little bit. But unfortunately, I think it's, uh, it's too little too late. Yeah. And it's time taken out of the paddock for these guys who, uh, who work hard and, and uh, they're working to nature's um, time, uh, time, uh, you know, time constrictions, not, uh, not the nine to five that they'd work in uh, Parliament House in Perth. Now, a lot of these farms have been uh, passed down through generations. And some of them can even be traced back to the original settlers. Now, the culture of this of farming in that region is, as I alluded to before, it's hardy, it's hardworking, they're law-abiding, law loyal people, they just want to work hard. It must be really infuriating for them to suddenly be told that after generations of, of farming this land, they now have to seek permission from some, you know, blow-in elder, for want of a better word, to, uh, to do stuff on their farm. Well, that's right. Look, and the, the insinuation and the accusation is that farmers uh, don't care about the environment, that they don't care about the welfare of the animals, and they don't care about Aboriginal culture that might be on their land, and nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, as anybody who would know who's come in contact with farmers and the farmers and agriculturists that we've been speaking to, they understand their land better than anybody else. They want to make sure they're doing the right thing by animal welfare, the environment and relevant Indigenous cultural uh, heritage. So they feel that um, they are being misrepresented and they're being talked down to. And like this idea that you're going to have these city-based politicians and bureaucrats who know more than farmers is, uh, I think, the height of uh, arrogance and it shows how out of touch these elites are. Again, these farmers are responsible for putting food on our plates, for feeding the nation and sending it around the world, earning export revenue that funds schools, roads, hospitals and other critical uh, social infrastructure that everybody benefits from. Like you say, this goes back generations. Uh, the only way you can pass down your farm to the next generation is if you're taking care of it. So farmers and landowners have the, the most incentive to do the right thing by the land, to make sure it's productive and to make sure that they can pass it on to the next uh, generation. Dan, sadly, this fits into a pattern that seems to be happening uh, in various other places around the world. Um, we've already seen, uh, for example, Dutch farmers, the Dutch government cracking down on the productivity of the farmers in the Netherlands. Um, and they are, in fact, some of the best, most efficient farmers in the world. Now, this has turned otherwise passive farmers in that country into a resistance army fighting for their survival. Are there any farmers in WA thinking, um, thinking that there might be a link here to the way uh, authoritarian governments are cracking down on food producers? 
Yeah, look, certainly there's been a lot of discussion here about what's been happening in the Netherlands and also in Sri Lanka uh, with the issues in those countries. Uh, so they are aware of the international context and they're worried about what might be coming out of the pipeline. Uh, the issue is, though, by the time the tractors are on the streets, it's too late. You know, by the time you're having to undertake these protests uh, in front of Parliament House and other type things, then really uh, you've sort of missed the opportunity. And that's why what we've been talking about is the need to have more ongoing professional advocacy on behalf of agriculturalists and farmers to make sure that it's not just in perpetual defensive mode where you're trying to bat away the issues of the day, but where you're having a positive framework and agenda being put out uh, to people to basically communicate that farmers are the good guys, not the bad guys. Uh, yet we know that for many, many years of activist campaigning being run out of the inner cities uh, and you know an education system that's fundamentally broken, that too many people now have the erroneous belief that farmers are responsible for environmental degradation and climate change and other such matters. Now, we all know that's uh, simply not true, uh, but if you're not on the front foot communicating these messages, uh, then downstream from that is when you have all of these problems with policy that we're now dealing with. Well, I hope you do have some effect and thank goodness for the IPA. What's happened to the Liberals and Nationals? Are there any opposition MPs within QE of this? Look, there has been some recent pushback. Uh, I think at the time that these laws were brought in, uh, there was uh, they basically waved them through. Uh, now that they know that these are a real issue and the community is largely opposed to it, we've seen the Liberals and the Nationals uh, speak out against it. Uh, again, it would have been good for them to have done that earlier. Uh, and the key thing here is, look, if you're not holding the government to account, then the costs and the consequences of their policies uh, simply aren't going to be communicated. Uh, we know that there's a pretty uh, compliant media here in Western Australia uh, so getting your message out is, is critical and having viable political opposition is important. Uh, I think that there's real opportunity politically for the Liberals and Nationals uh, to provide opposition to this policy because it's not just farmers who are affected. You know, if you have a property that's greater than 1,100 uh, metres squared, uh, which is only a little bit bigger than your quarter acre block, you're going to be affected by that. So if you've got a, a golf course, if you've got a, a pub on a reasonably large set of ground, if you've hobby farming, you know, there's so many activities that will be captured by this. Uh, that uh, the, the impacts are going to be widespread, dramatic. And uh, I think as time goes by, the costs of this are going to rise and people are going to become more aware of it. Uh, Dan, before we go, well, and while I've got you there, what's the mood about the voice to parliament in that part of Australia? Oh, look, they, they don't want the voice to parliament in this part of Australia. They're seeing what's happening now with uh, these cultural heritage laws and they know it's going to get much, much worse if a voice to parliament is in place. Uh, we know that one of the first things they'll do is try and abolish Australia Day. Uh, they're going to tinker around with superannuation. We've had this from the lead campaigners admitting it. Uh, what we know is it'll be involved in almost every single major issue. So if you think it's hard getting things done now, it's going to be so much worse under the voice to parliament. Of course, because it's in the constitution, it's there permanently. Uh, that also means it's risky. Uh, and because the prime minister won't provide any details, uh, people are getting very sceptical about what the real uh, issues are and what the real agenda is. So, look, there's widespread pushback and concern about the voice to parliament here in this part of Western Australia. And I also think in a lot of the metro, metro suburban parts, uh, there's concerns about what the voice to parliament will do, in addition to the fact that it's going to divide us and basically create separate political and legal rights for people uh, based on their race. So this is something that is uh, causing huge angst and concern in the community. Well, I've got to say, in Western Australia, when push comes to shove, the good sense, the common sense of Western Australians comes through to the fore. Dan, you can't see that over your shoulder there's been a couple of kids just playing around in the park behind you. It's a very pleasant scene. Got to say, Bustleton is one of the most beautiful towns in the southwest. 
and uh, you're visiting a nice place, but you are uncovering what is white hot anger in your words about what's happening to their farmers and uh, rightfully so. Good on the IPA for sticking up for farmers and for ordinary Australians. Thanks so much for your time, Dan. Great, thanks Fred, appreciate it. That's the Institute of Public Affairs Deputy Executive D Director Dan Wild doing what the coalition opposition should be doing. That was an interview I did last week and I've got to say that since then, politics in Australia has got even worse. When will all this madness end? Well, anyway, that's all from me tonight. Thanks for watching. If you want to see more ADH content, have a look around our website or app for some of the best commentary in the nation from people like Mark Stein, Alan Jones, Daisy Cousins, David Flint, Nick Cater, Lyle Shelton, Dave Pellow, and more. Tell your friends, ADH is the new home for common sense commentary, and there is no shortage of things to comment about these days. I'll see you next Monday at seven o'clock. Good night.